nobody there It seems I'm all alone again Does anybody care? This planet's empty I see no signs of life Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive There are no people in the future There are no people There are no people in the future No people at all There are no people in the future Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future Let me try my people call Hey everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Friday, June 23rd, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kev Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today for all the details. And you can help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel, if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like that stream, like the stream for the show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. Leave a comment to let other folks know why you like the show. Little things like that help other people find the show. And as we move into the school board election season, we cannot let Paul Martino, Moms for Liberty, and their oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted PAC who invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money, you get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, on today's show, look, a ton of stuff is going on right now. Um, and there is just no way we're going to get to it all. So just know that going into this. Uh, wow, what a week. Some stories I've been checking out, though, is a county in Oregon is suing some major fossil fuel companies and industry groups for their role in climate change. According to reporting in Despoglog, the lawsuit, um, one in Oregon, quote, seeks to hold fossil fuel companies and their misinformation agents accountable. This is a big deal. Um, For the unprecedented 2021 heat dome that saw temperatures in the county reach 116 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, that county is the one that contains Portland. Like, so uh, just give it a sense, right? You're talking about some pretty cool areas of the country getting to be 116 degrees. Anyways, the lawsuit is of special interest because it also implicates the global consulting firm McKinsey and Company for their role in spreading misinformation. This is going to be a really interesting lawsuit. I'm hoping to get somebody on the show to talk about this one and the lawsuit in Montana. And while the national media was urgently reporting on the fate of five people on a shoddy submarine seeking to tour the Titanic wreck, North Atlantic ocean temperatures went off the map. The unexpected heating of the Atlantic is, in the words of Bill McKibben, quote, truly terrifying news. In addition to that, an unprecedented heat dome over Mexico and Texas is producing deadly storms and heat. The jet stream maps are just freaking wild. A new reporting by Cyril Michaleko in the Bucks County Beacon shows how the right-wing donor group, the Bradley Foundation, 
is now helping bankroll efforts to help Republicans weaponize the Department of Justice. Ooh, if Pennsylvania is getting hot. Yes, Moms for Liberty is holding their annual national summit in Philadelphia beginning next week. They will be met by protests, of course, as they host a range of Republican presidential hopefuls, including Trump, Florida Governor Don DeSantis, and former Trump official and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. And now we've learned that the pseudo-populist, anti-vaxxer, and conspiracy theorist Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he's going to be speaking there as well. You know, the guy who's running on the Democratic Party ticket? Yep, uh, he is, uh, well, we'll get into that maybe a little bit. And as the Moms for Liberty get ready to gather in Philly, yet another Moms for Liberty chapter in Indiana is under fire for quoting Hitler approvingly in their newsletter. Yep, and new reporting and Vice also documents the close relationships that Moms for Liberty has cultivated with the Proud Boys and other extremist organizations. And let's not, of course, forget the Monroe County, Pennsylvania Moms for Liberty chapter whose leader stole a dead woman's Facebook identity to harass other people. Not even just in PA, but in other states. Seems to me that all the bad apples are in one bunch. <laughs> oh, God. We'll talk a little information on the protests uh, that are coming up. Um, great uh, piece by Jenny Stevens in the Bucks County Beacon, kind of uh, talking a little about those protests and how you can get involved. New reporting in the Bucks County Courier Times shows how the Harrisburg-based right-wing religious independent law firm, a law center, I'm sorry, has influenced and continues to influence Central Bucks and York schools. Yeah. And the Penridge School Board meeting was packed once again, as the far-right majority continued to force through their agenda and demonstrate their incompetence. The highlight of the meeting was the Zoom presentation by Jordan Adams, the CEO of Vermilion Education. Definitely going to get into that. Those folks who are not familiar with Vermilion Education, they are the Hillsdale College linked group that is pushing this kind of American exceptionalist Christian nationalist curriculum into public schools. And uh, that kind of uh, like far right majority on the Penridge School Board basically, uh, you know, just kind of rammed through uh, hiring this dude. Um, and we've talked about this in the show, but we'll get to that. We'll, we'll I'll just wait. I'll wait because otherwise I'm going to get off on a track right now. Um, but we'll talk about a lot about what happened there and the amazing, amazing community organization and outpouring um, of resistance to what the board is doing. And for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook, wherever you get your streams, and subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't heard The Signal is a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and is produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist current streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. 
You can go directly to the podcast at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com, or you can pick up the show wherever you get your podcasts. Just check out the signal wherever you get your podcasts. And for all you gamers out there, the Game In, that's with two ends, is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. Man, and kids, you know, during the school year, I know we're out of school now, but they get A's. When they get A's, when they get A's, they get discounts. It's pretty cool. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In, again with two N's. Got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. The shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter. It's at Song of Day Man. That's with two N's, at Song of Day Man on Twitter. And coming up this Monday, June 26 at 7 p.m., um, I welcome Chris Ullery back to the show to talk about his article in the Bucks County Courier Times that's called emails show how religious liberties law firm have influenced Bucks and uh, York schools. Chris, of course, is a reporter covering extremism and social justice for the Courier Times PA state team. And this article builds on reporting that um, he's done with Bethany Rogers, who's an investigative journalist for the USA Today Network's Pennsylvania Capitol Bureau. And that, their re- kind of joint reporting has looked at the uh, results of some open records requests they did, looking into the money and influence behind the PA's school board warrants. Um, so as I mentioned above, uh, we're seeing uh, more of Chris, of course, was on the show the last time when the, the first round of reporting our, uh, articles came out uh, about what they found and the, uh, the role of the Independence Law Center uh, has been playing in Central Buck schools and York schools and several other school districts across the, across the uh, Commonwealth. Um, this even digs deeper and say that influence from the Independence Law Center is even deeper than from suspected. So do tune in on this coming Monday, June 26th at 7 p.m. Um, we're talking to Chris Ullery. And look, if we want progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punch's homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron for, of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash Press for all the details. We're here for the fight and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement, the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, how's everybody doing today? I hope you're doing okay. Um, it uh, looks like we're finally going to get some rain here um, in uh, the southeast corner of Pennsylvania. Um, just welcome. It's been drizzling out all morning and thunderstorms are expected. So um, I'm very much looking forward to that because it's been extremely dry, as everybody knows. Um, that's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, so we will talk about what happened in Penridge. I want to definitely spend some time on that this week. Um, but, uh, you know, there's so much stuff that is happening right now. If you notice that I did not even mention all the kind of Trump back and forth that was, that's been happening. And I keep on saying, you know, to people, you know, well, you know, why, you know, Hey, are you going to talk about the Trump? Look, if you want to find out what's happening, um, with Trump, just go to MSNBC. I mean, it's like Trump like 24 seven over there. That's all they report on, right? As if that's the only major story that's happening in the week. Um, but uh, I, there's some stories that I, I wanted to highlight, like given how much is going on, um, I, I wanted to highlight uh, a couple stories that um, are not getting as much attention. 
And one of them is this really interesting um, development in um, Oregon. So if you recall, um, we, we talked about this over the past couple of weeks. There's the uh, so-called youth uh, climate lawsuit in Montana, where a group of young folks are bringing suit against the state of Montana um, for um, their lack of effective climate mitigation efforts, basically. And actually, they would even go further um, for kind of laws that actually inhibit the ability to address um, the impacts of climate change. And so that's historic, right? That was a historic lawsuit that's going forward. And now we're starting to see a range of other lawsuits that are um, connected to climate. So there's this, um, this great story in uh, the, the Smog blog. I haven't checked out the Smog. You really should for, for climate reporting um, by uh, Dana Drugmond. And it's called Oregon County Sues Fossil Fuel Entities Enablers for Contributing to the Deadly 2021 Heat Wave. Now, this is uh, the reason why I want to highlight this story is kind of for several reasons. Like one, because, um, you know, if you recall, um, one of the things that we have looked into quite kind of extensively on the show and kind of repeatedly on the show has been the role in which, uh, say, say, industry groups or um, kind of consultant groups kind of play, right? All the stuff that's happening behind the scenes, not what's happening for like what we get to see reported on TV and stuff. But so for example, two weeks ago, we had Ali Shaw on the show um, talking about the influence of the oil and gas industry's trade groups, right? Um, much, oh, sorry, um, trade group has had in say in Pennsylvania. Now this is the you know, group called the American Petroleum Institute. They are a lobbying group. Um, and very often kind of flies below the radar, especially when it comes to reporting on um, kind of what's happening in climate change and so on. And that's because they play kind of behind the scenes, but they are funded by the most powerful corporations on the planet, like Exxon and Mobil and Chevron and so on, right? So that's one of these examples. So one of the other things that are, ha that um, um, one of the other aspects, the other kind of influencers um, that gets goes way below the radar is this organization, you may or may not have heard of them, they're called McKinsey & Company, right? McKinsey & Company is like a, they, they call themselves a global management consulting firm and they're based in New York City, right? It's been around since like 1926, right? Um, in like the late kind of, the late 80s, right, or so, um, well, I would maybe before then, but McKinsey has kind of, I would say the eighties and nineties when I really started kind of, at least someone like me started kind of like hearing about McKinsey and do this because they were, um, basically had their hands in everything, right? They're a consultant company that's being hired by, by, by corporations and government agencies and, um, institutes and nonprofit firms and all bunch of state governments and all this kind of stuff to help them consult around questions, say, efficiency, of about efficiency. So they played a role in um, the kind of the advancement of neoliberalism, right? Um, um, about how to basically increase shareholder value and so on. But it was always done under the, um, the auspices of efficiency. What McKinsey has done differently than a lot of these other consulting groups, right, is that they have marketed themselves as a progressive, like, you know, sounding at least, um, firm. And 
they have targeted like Ivy League schools to recruit all their talent. So like McKinsey will will routinely go to like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, um, Brown and all this stuff, and tr- and basically offer high paying jobs to um, kind of Ivy League grads um, to basically do this kind of consulting work. Now, the thing is, is, you know, that's the way that they build their own brand, right? Is that look at all these kind of like, like the, all the people working for us with all these Ivy League things, we are the smartest out there, right? So McKinsey and the, the Democrats, right? In particular, the, um, like the, the kind of like Bill Clinton Democrats, like the Democratic Leadership Council stuff, even the Obama Democrats have, have a very close relationship with McKinsey. Right. Pete Buttigieg. Right. Uh, worked for McKinsey. Right. So you get an idea of where they come on. They are not this kind of right wing conspiratorial organization. Right. What they are, however, is right in the main of kind of like the history of neoliberalism. Right. Because they have been part of the process of ushering us toward where we are today. But they've been cloaked in the mantle of progressivism and positivity and so on. Right. Um, and it's a, and that's part of their branding, right? And people who have worked there say it's like, it's a really good job. You get a lot of experience. You get a lot of stuff really good. The company treats people well, although that's been changing a, a little bit of late. But so it's the kind of thing, if you land a job at McKinsey, fresh out of college, you're making good bank, right? You're given a lot of responsibility. You're working with all these really other smart people. It feels like you're basically moving from your kind of Ivy League college to a new college, right? Because you're basically with other people that you've been sharing your space with for the past four to six years. There you go. But anyways, McKinsey has been um, also been slowly has been exposed as they've taking part in some of the climate denial. Right. Um, So that's kind of what was happening in this lawsuit. So let me just read a little bit from this article from um, from Dana Drugman uh, once again. Uh, just to kind of unpack this a little bit. And I do think this is going to be something that is going to be of interest. I'm going to re- I'm reaching out to uh, Dana Drugman too as well, so we can get her on the show to talk about these um, the different climate lawsuits because that's kind of her beat. So anyhow, here's, here's a bit from her article. So major fossil fuel entities and trades associations, including Coke Industries, right, the American Petroleum Institute, right, and the Western States Petroleum Association, as well as the consulting behemoth McKinsey and Company, were slapped with the latest climate liability lawsuit today with the filing of the complaint at the Oregon Circuit Court in Multnomah County, Oregon. The Northwest Oregon County is the state's most populous and includes the city of Portland. And in this new lawsuit, it seeks to hold fossil fuel companies and their misinformation agents accountable for the unprecedented 2021 heat dome that saw temperatures in the county reach 116 degrees Fahrenheit. Climate scientists and researchers in in attribution science have determined that this extreme heat event would have been, quote, virtually impossible without anthropogenic climate change, which is driven primarily by the burning of fossil fuels. Multnomah County is utilizing, uh, quote, uh, multiple county is utilizing irrefutable climate science to hold corporate polluters accountable for their role in causing discrete and disastrous event, as well as recent wildfires, unquote. Attorney uh, Roger Worthington, a partner at Worthington and Karen, one of the firms representing the county, stated in a press release, quote, this lawsuit is about accountability and fairness, and I believe the people of Multmouth County deserve both. 
These businesses um, knew their products were unsafe and unharmful, and they lied about it, unquote, added Jessica Vega Peterson, uh, chair of the Multnomah uh, County Board of Commissioners in, in the press release. So, and named in this consultants, right, are named in this uh, thing, so defense of here are ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP, Shell, ConocoPhillips, uh, Motiva, Occidental Petroleum, Anadarko Petroleum, Space Age Fuel, Valero Energy, Total Specialities USA, Marathon Petroleum, Peabody Energy, Coke Industries, American Petroleum Institute, Western States Petroleum Association, and McKinsey and Company, right? Um, this is going to be just a incredibly interesting um, thing. This is the first time that McKinsey and Company has been named as a defendant in a climate liability or a climate accountability lawsuit, and it's also the first climate case to name the Western States Petroleum Association as a defendant. Other climate cases filed by California communities have invoked Big Oil Trade Association, the American Petroleum Institute, which spent more than any other group lobbying in California last year. The same kind of situation that we saw happening here in um, Pennsylvania. So this is the last thing I'm going to read from here. I want to, so this is one of the things that's kind of key why McKinsey is important. Oh, and this is from the article again. Quote um, this from the article. McKinsey and company has a sordid history of working with industries that have deliberately deceived the public about the harms of their products, from big tobacco to opioid manufacturers. The consulting firm has also served the fossil fuel industry. As explained in the 2022 book, When McKinsey Comes to Town, since 2010, McKinsey has worked for at least 43 of the 100 largest corporate carbon polluters. These companies, quote, when accounting for the customers who use their products, were responsible for more than 36% of the planet's greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels in 2018, unquote. Authors Walt Bogdanich and uh, Michael Forsyth write, Chevron, one of the defendants in the new case, has been one of McKinsey's biggest clients, generating at least $50 million in consulting fees in 2019. So, and I could go on, but, but I won't, but this is, this is going to be a really interesting case to follow. And I'm, you know, uh, the more that I can get folks on the show to kind of talk about what's happening in these cases, um, I'm interested in them primarily because what they're pointing to is a developing legal strategy um, as part of climate action, climate activism, and climate justice, um, to begin holding some of these um, these uh, these massive entities um, um, accountable for what they are, what they've done to our planet, right? And again, we can make the case, right? I mean, I guess I don't really need to say this to, um, to everybody here. But, you know, we can make the case that, look, you know, we've all been burning fossil fuels. We all are, have, you know, some role. Yes, 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 yes. We can, all, we can all do that, right? And I know that's what the fossil fuel companies will say and blah, blah, blah. But the issue here is that they have actively worked to deny the climate science, worked to undermine climate action, right, um, and created disinformation, right, um, to help create a public that was resistance to climate, climate action, right? So that's the kind of, that's the big picture here. What happens in these strategies? These strategies are going to develop. The same thing was going to happen. Some of the initial lawsuits that were happening over big tobacco, right? I mean, there were initial lawsuits that were. Some of them were dismissed. Some of them kind of, um, kind of went so far and then got stopped. Some of them were small victories. But it took time um, to basically build up the case against the tobacco industry and holding them accountable for the cancer that um, 
had spread across across the country. And again, yes, individuals made a decision to smoke and then became addicted. Right. The idea was is that the big tobacco companies, right, and their lobbying firms were the ones who basically created a disinformation campaign to create a sense of, you know, doubt over whether tobacco actually caused or smoking cigarettes actually caused kind of cancer or downplayed the long term effects or like worked really hard to turn every discussion over lung cancer right into one about individual responsibility. That's the same thing that we saw happening, right? This should sound familiar for our discussion with Ali Shaw, right? Um, this also should sound familiar about our discussion that we had um, with uh, Christina Marusic, right? When we were talking about her new book, uh, A New War, uh, New War on Cancer, when one of the things that she talked about um, in her book was that the way that we have been taught to think about cancer is one of individual responsibility, right? So the way that you kind of prevent cancer in your life, right, is that you make healthy choices, right? And then if you develop cancer, well, it must be something about you had some kind of unhealthy choices along the way, right? And what Christina Marusic did in her book, right, is to show that no, 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 it is not simply the uh, individual choices, while those things are important, right? But we're talking about a system, right, that floods our, our, our drinking water, our air, our soil, our food with chemicals and carcinogens, right? And it is that systemic environmental factors that accounts for the vast majority of kind of cancer, of the rise in cancer cases, right? And yet the industry wants us to think about individual choices. Same thing is happening here in climate. Because if you think about like all the push towards electric vehicles, right, electric cars, right? Again, it becomes an individual choice. Now, suddenly, I'm asked to make this kind of moral choice. Do I as an individual put solar panels on my house? Do I as an individual um, stop kind of eating so much red meat? Do I as an individual um, kind of uh, have uh, get an electric car, right? And all of those things are individual choices that are kind of important that we're gonna have to continually be thinking about making. However, right, those individual choices cannot address climate change by itself, right? As a matter of fact, those individual choices are not what caused the problem, right? And the only way that we actually address the problem is to address the systemic nature of things, right? This is something we're very bad at doing in this country, right? Looking at systemic nature of stuff. So if anything, what this, why I got so charged up about reading about this lawsuit was because it's, once again, it goes to the heart of what I think we try to do on this show, right? Is to having that focus on the systemic nature of things, Right. Yes, to highlight the work that is happening in communities, the organizing that is going on in communities and the work that people are doing in the community, that stuff, work the movements are doing, but also to have that focus on the systemic nature of the problems. Right. So cool, cool uh, reporting. Kudos goes out to Dana Drugman and um, for this and the other thing. And kudos goes out to uh, the I'm going to I'm going to learn how to pronounce this name, the Multnomah, uh, Multnomah County. Um, for actually um, bringing this lawsuit, right? To the county bringing the lawsuit is pretty awesome. We'll follow that. And um, so that's happening. And, you know, if anything, you know, again, it's one of these moments of opportunity to begin to get really focused on what's happening in the climate because, like, look, I mean, the whole week was dominated. I mean, if you still go, look, if I go to, I'm going to go right now, I'm going to go to, <coughs> going to go to uh, Google News, right? Just going to pull it up. 
And if and if you if ever if you use Google News or not, like whether it's on your phone or whatever, or whatever news thing you have, right? It comes up like here's the top stories and so on. So this is I just refreshed the page, right? Here's a this is what is showing as the top um, the top um, pages here. Missing Titanic sub crew killed after catastrophic implosion. Live updates. U.S. That was from the CNN. Wall Street Journal, U.S. Navy heard what would believe to be a uh, was Titan implosion days ago from the Wall Street Journal. Um, the, uh, with the fate of Titanic, uh, Titanic bound sub submersible clear focus turns to cause of fatal implosion uh, from a uh, an ABC TV affiliate. The Charlotte Observer said the Titanic wreck led to safer um, led to safer seas. Maybe the Titanic tourist sub will do all this stuff right from opinion to reporting, and you know this as well as I do. The entire week has been dominated by this, especially in the kind of mainstream news. Okay. And again, I do not want to diminish like the loss of, of five lives. Right. Um, and yes, we can go into all the stuff like this is a bunch of rich folks, right? This is a company that, uh, um, that, you know, did this submersible was, uh, did everything it could do to kind of skirt regulations and industry best span standards. There had been past complaints about the unsafe, um, unsafe situation that people were in, in the submersible about that. It was not um, like it was not up to code, all that kind of stuff. Right. We could talk about those things, those things over there. And we could say like, look, you know, there was this 19 year old kid who didn't even want to go, but his father made him come and now he's dead. Right. I mean, these are real human stories. Like, and I get that. And I know why, those stories attract us because it also gets us involved, right? Like, are they going to find them? Are they going to, you know, it's like, it's like when you have like a mine explosion or something like this too, as well, there's like lots of coverage around it to see if those workers are going to be saved. Right. So I don't want to diminish any of that stuff. Right. But just to see how, how many resources were marshaled. Right. And I mean, like journalistic media resources were marshaled to cover this particular story and dig into this and turn it into that kind of like, you know, frontline story that was going to keep people watching. The same time that is happening, right? This week, I don't know if you saw this or not, but the um, climate scientists have been, have been kind of sharing out this is unprecedented heating that is happening in the North Atlantic. And, you know, there's this, uh, there were these charts that were being posted by a range of climate scientists, right? The one I'm looking at right at the, right at this at this moment um, is that uh, Bill McKibben shared this one this one out, but this is one that was you probably have seen this. So there's this temperature. It's like the North Atlantic sea surface uh, temperature anomaly, right? Um, and it's a, it's a it's a chart that goes from about 19, uh, 1982 to uh, 20, 2011, right? And uh, for 20 or for the 2011 mean, I'm sorry. Right. And so then each year is kind of charted against this stuff. And so there's like all these blue squiggle lines um, kind of on the lower part of the graph, right. Which represents these kind of anomalies from the mean temperature. Right. So that 1982 to 2011, basically they, they take the, the temperature between those things and basically say, okay, what's the mean, right? What's the center point, right? We don't want to go the extreme. What's the extreme high or the extreme low? We want to see what kind of it all kind of averages out to like to see just so we have something to measure everything else from. And so we can see that sometimes that it drops below the mean, like it's colder than usual. And sometimes it drops, it goes above the mean, right? Well, we've seen that like, um, and, and it's charted over the course of a year, right? So you can see there's all these things. And yes, increasingly over time, you begin to see that 
um, there's, you know, gradual heating of that, uh, of the ocean. Um, you can see um, a few years ago, there was the kind of like a, a kind of a warming thing that kind of that went to like one, I don't know. But I, the line for 2023, right, up until now, is almost completely off that those you know that chart right so there's all these green these these blue lines here and there's this red line way up top because we are so far above the mean right we are so far above the mean that it's just it's 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 absolutely crazy so like in june this is just you know as of june we we're basically um 1.3 degrees celsius higher of temperature right than the mean the previous right the previous spike was what i think it's like i'm looking at it and i'm trying to get a, a maybe a 0.9 point so let's say 0.99 right we say almost a one degree right so this is like 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 0.3 and even actually last week you know that was 0.3 degrees celsius higher and that might not seem like, you know, this huge thing to everybody, right? It's like, oh, is that all it is? But you're talking about, like, patterns of forming. And that's it. So, and so that's, that's the one, that one thing that's going on, right? And the, you know, climate scientists all over the place are like, man, what is happening in the North Atlantic? What is happening in the North Atlantic? Why are we seeing this kind of, like, why are we seeing this kind of warming? Right. What is going on that is making it so extreme right now? Um, this is, uh, you know, again, this is something that scientists have expected for a long period of time. Um, however, um, none of them, right, have expected this to happen this quickly. Here's looking to see that other one. So that's it. Then on the other side of things, right, on the land side of the climate uh, situation, if we look what's happening down in Texas and, and Mexico, there is a an unprecedented uh, record-breaking heat dome, right, sitting over, I mean, it's basically kind of hanging out um, just south of Texas, right? And as, as you probably saw earlier in this week, there was these catastrophic um, tornadoes that ripped through, um, that ripped through uh, Texas, um, and uh, it's just incredible. So just to give you a sense of this, I want to, this is a guy's name is uh, Jeff uh, Berardelli, right? He is, uh, he's a climate scientist, he's a meteorologist and climate specialist um, out of Tampa Bay, the chief meteorologist and climate specialist uh, of WFLA-TV uh, in Tampa Bay. Um, he's, uh, you know, his background is in atmospheric sciences and, you know, he's got all the degrees that you need. But he's been kind of, I've been following him this week because, you know, he's been charting this stuff. One of the things why I started following him is because he has been consistently following the jet stream. And the jet stream has been just crazy, right? I mean, it's been going way up north, way down south. It's been super wobbly. Again, this is something that climate scientists have predicted, right? One of the reasons why the east has been so cool, right? And then there's been this heat that's been in the center of the country, right? Well, I'll read you a little bit about what he what he was saying this week. He said they call this the ring of fire, right? This this huge heat dome, right? 
It's a term meteorologists use when the edge of a heat dome helps feed intense severe weather like the violent tornado yesterday. This is, you know, earlier in the week. Um, um, yesterday in West Texas and the 97 mile an hour gust, uh, gust squall line in Houston. Um, storms fired up on the edge of record breaking ridge. So excessive heat feeds fuel storms from the south, adding energy. The edge of the ring of fire marks the contrast between extreme heat and warmth. And that zone tends to have stronger winds aloft and aids supercell intensity um, and forward speed. Rings of fire often produce um, derechos, which is this kind of storm. The heat dome has been one of the worst in recorded history for Mexico, which has been under the core. Texas has been on the, has been on the edge, and they have seen many all-time record highs. But the heat wave there is not unprecedented. Next week, Texas may be just as bad as the dome rebuilds. The heat dome is made worse by greenhouse heating and is likely also El Nino, which is a natural oscillation. El Nino's tropical um, Pacific warming releases excess energy into the atmosphere and influences global weather patterns, right? So he's kind of breaking that down. Um, <clears throat> that's what you kind of have. Like, you know, again, to go back to the, uh, well, I don't want to go back here. Um, show this other one. Oh, um, but that's, that's shows you, right? So you have this heating of the heating of the, the ocean, and then you have this massive heat dome, right? Uh, this is the kind of thing that's going to, going to be continuing, right? We talked about this last week on the show is that there's been increasing pressure around this uh, upcoming climate, um, UN climate summit, um, uh, because all the fossil fuel industries are are being brought into the um, into the equation, right? They're the very people. That it's like it's like saying, "Hey, hey, we're gonna we're gonna talk to all the all the criminals. We're gonna get all the criminals, right? All the people that have caused the problem, all the people who are threatening us, the people who have been denying that they're threatening us for all this time, and we're gonna have them come in and we're gonna make them part of the thing instead of holding them accountable, right? This is all happening too. If you think about why that lawsuit that I mentioned in Oregon is so important, right, is because just give you this one example, right? So a meteorologist in Iowa just resigned from his local TV news job due to ongoing threats from climate change deniers, right? This is from the Washington Post. So when Iowa meteorologist Chris um, Gloninger got an email notification last June, it read, quote, getting sick and tired of your liberal conspiracy on the weather, unquote. What's your address? Another asked uh, Gloninger a few days later. Quote, we conservative Iowans like to give you an Iowan welcome you will never forget, unquote. The emails arrived relentlessly in Gloninger's inbox for another month, and the Iowa Capital, Disp uh, the Iowa Capital Dispatch reported. The sender accused the award-winning meteorologist who spoke frequently about the effects of climate change of being a conspiracy theorist and a, quote, worthless Biden puppet, unquote. Another told Gloninger to, quote, go east and drown from the ice cap melting, unquote. Gloninger, the chief meteorologist of the Des Moines news station, KCCI, shared some of the messages on social media in July and said they had taken a toll on him. Quote, I'm trying to put it behind me, Gloninger told the Washington Post, but at the same point, I think it brings awareness to what journalists face day to day bringing the news, unquote. The episode ultimately led the meteorologist to a career-altering decision, Gloninger is departing KCCI and his career in TV news in July, he announced on a Wednesday, citing family health issues and post-traumatic stress he suffered after receiving the threats. Right? <clears throat> there you go, right? 
Now that guy I was talking about before, uh, Jeff um, Berardelli, Berardelli, Berardelli. Uh, I'm, just, I, I'm horrible with his pronunciations, but is it? He said, uh, "Look, there's recently there's been a lot of discussion about scientists and TV meteorologists dealing with trolling or uh, threatening messages when they are communicating uh, when they communicate climate." I've been heavily involved in this space, so here are some thoughts that may help. First, the voices that deny climate change are a very small part of the U.S. society, one in 10 or less. Poll after poll from Yale and George Mason shows this exact number. It hasn't changed. Evidence that this group is basically immovable in their views. But they are very loud, giving the impression they are a much larger slice of the public. You will not change their mind with one million and one facts. That's because the choice to understand or to not understand climate science is always based on ideology, not facts. It is a waste of your energy better spent on educating those open to learning. And two-thirds of the U.S. population understands that human beings to a large degree are responsible for climate change, and much of the difference between the two-third and the 10% are just not sure, are just not sure or disengaged. Climate doubt is much lower internationally. Personally, and this is this Jeff Berardelli talking again, I've had a mostly positive experience in my climate comms journey. Sure, I've had plenty of trolls and some angry emails, much of them, quote, stick to the weather, saying stick to the weather, but I always go back to the understanding that that's, that it's a very loud but a very small minority, right? And it kind of, it kind of goes on and gives some of these discussions, right? Um, that is really important, right, um, to remember, and I think this is true. This carries through not just in the climate scientists um, area, but it also carries through into the kind of uh, experience that we're having in school boards, kind of locally and across and across the country, that we're seeing in our politics. It is that kind of that vocal, militant, like you know, disconnected from the world of facts. That group, the immovable folks. They are loud and they are committed. They are, they have belief. You know, my friend Rick Smith is always, always talks about this, right? He says, you know, how you, when somebody just says, I believe, right? When it's just about belief, no number of facts are going there because it's like a religious conviction at that point, right? If you watch what was happening on the school boards, or, you know, as I went intensely, the, the, um, the Penridge school board this past week, you saw that all these people coming forward, all these members of the community coming forward and kind of urging members of the board um, to do the right thing, to, to, to cancel the contract for a million. What would normally shame people, right? These people just, just didn't phase them, right? Because they believe, right? It is a religious conviction for them that there's these conspiracy theories that there's these kind of like liberals attempting to kind of like convert all kids into kind of like, you know, trans boys and girls, right. You know, that they're trying to kind of like dupe us all into submission by taking away our meat, you know, all this kind of stuff. When you are down the rabbit hole that far and you have committed that to that faith, that is your faith. It's just like you believe in God or you don't. Right. It's like, once you believe, and if you are a firm believer, somebody's going to say, prove it to me. And you're gonna be like, I have faith that God's there. Right? You can't, you can't, you're arguing on different terms. Right? And they say, well, well, show me the evidence. She says, I don't need to show you the evidence. I believe it's true. Right? Or they have one or two examples they can pick out that basically justifies their belief. Right? I mean, it's that kind of stuff. 
So I, I do think I wanted to read that part of what he what he was saying, just in part because that's a good reminder for all of us. At the same time, one of the things that I don't think he addresses as much, which is really important, is that just like you know, these are people who understand themselves to be like twenty first century crusaders, right? That they believe so deeply right, in these conspiracies, right, in this kind of global cabal, right, all their anti-Semitic global cabal, right, all their white supremacist, like, you know, like nonsense. They believe to such a degree that they prove to us on January 6th that they're willing to commit violence for that belief because they believe that they are the righteous crusaders, right? And historically, right, the only thing that has ever changed that, right, has not been convincing those people, right, but has been changing that system, right, whether it's getting rid of the, you know, insane folks, right, getting rid of them, like kicking them out of office, holding them accountable, right. That's really important. That's why this upcoming school board election, like, you know, school board elections are so important because you got to get rid of those folks. People got to vote them out. We got to ensure that we put an end to that, right? And well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, finally, I wanted to talk about this great piece that uh, Cyril Michaleko just uh, published. Um, he published this just yesterday, right? And it's uh, about the Bradley Foundation. For those of you who may not be familiar with the Bradley Foundation, the Bradley Foundation—they're based out of Wisconsin, I believe, out of Milwaukee—and the Bradley Foundation has a long history of anti-public schools, right? They were some of the, I remember learning about this, learning about who the Bradley Foundation was back in like the early 2000s, right? When we were first starting to uncover the role of these, you know, right-wing foundations that were out there that sound really good. Um, even in the um, in like 2008, 2009, we started the Bradley Foundation because the like, for example, the Obama administration, for example. And uh, God, I'm just forgetting his name, um, uh, Arnie Duncan. Right. You know, the kind of like anti public school pro charter, all that kind of that dude pro standardized testing and all that kind of was deeply connected to working with the with the, the Bradley Foundation. Right. Most of us had no idea the Bradley Foundation. You say, well, oh, it's a family and their foundation. They give money towards education. But it turns out their one of their primary agendas, right, was to basically undermine public schools and and um, through promoting charters, right? So they had they literally had a manual about how to do this, right? And when that that got published, we got our hands on this. I remember back in the day, look, you're like, oh my God, this is the exact playbook of what's happened in Philadelphia. This is the exact playbook of what's happening in these other kind of locales where they're pushing for um, the, the changing of um, laws around charter schools that allows the charters to basically extract more of public funds in order to kind of carry out um, these private interests, right? Just as one example of this, one of the, uh, one of the and this is true in Philadelphia, one of the, the laws in Pennsylvania, the charter laws in Pennsylvania, is that the charter schools get paid first, right? Um, so if there's any budget shortfalls, it does not affect the charter schools. And so they have this formula, right, where you have like so much money, 
right? I, I don't know what the figure is exactly right now, goes with each student. So it's a breakdown per student, right? So then you can take that money and then apply it to a charter school, right? A charter school is basically like a business that is, that is whose primary client is the government, right? Because their primary client, right, is basically that's who they're getting paid from. So the students are merely the, the, the like, you know, the, uh, the, the, what do you call it? The, the commodity that's being traded, right, by these um, charter schools, right? And they could talk about, yes, we're, you know, oh, yeah, we're kind of like doing great stuff in here. And look, there's, there are some good charter schools, right? But if you look at cyber charter schools, for example, and all the fraud that is uh, wreaked in, 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 uh, in Pennsylvania um, with those cyber charter schools, some people, you know, sued because of that and things have gone bankrupt. But it was because like, you know, there was people that understood like, oh, look, this is a huge opportunity to make a ton of money, right? All I do is basically, if each student is a commodity that is worth, let's just say for the sake, for the sake of argument, $3,500, right? Each student is worth $3,500, right? And then I don't have any overhead costs because I'm going to do the cyber charter. And I can take this, like, you know, this lesson that I found online for free, and I could say students do this, and I'm going to call that education, right, I get to bank that money. Right, and there's a whole bunch of things that people did in order to do that. Right, but let's so, so let's go back to my point. My point was that um, the idea was by well, the charter is getting paid first, right? So for example, take $3,500 per student, right? And now I say I have a public, I have a public school system um, that has, say, I don't know, let's say, a hundred students from that school district goes into a charter school, right? So that's $35,000, right? So that $35,000, is that right? $35,000 is it more than that? $350,000? I'm, I'm horrible at math. So let's just see, let's just do this the right way. Shall we, Kevin? So I'm going to take, say, I'm going to take a hundred students, right? And um, they're, each student is worth $3,500 in my example. Yeah, $350,000. I'm sorry. I was like, wait, that sounds really low. $350,000, right? 100 students, $350,000, right? So before the school district can spend money on its own needs, it has to pay the charter $350,000, right? And that's guaranteed by law. Let's remember those charter schools also are not sub, uh, subject to the same scrutiny as public schools. They're not required, right, to kind of meet, say, say, standards on public testing and all this other stuff, right? And many of them get to choose who they let in. They have ways of doing this, right? Ways of kind of like saying, oh, yeah, I know. Oh, sorry, all you disabled students. I'm sorry that you couldn't make it into our schools. Like, you know, try again. Right. So they're able to kind of siphon off the cream of the crop, right, so that they could, quote unquote, perform, perform better, even though every study shows that they do not. Right. Matter of fact, traditional public schools tend to perform better right, overall. Or just as good. But most charters are just kind of they say, no, it's, it's inexperienced. Even the uh, even the uh, what do you call it? The um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right They're uh, all their experience and all the kind of like hundreds of millions of dollars that they poured into charter schools. Right, all the experiments they carried out in K through 12 education, right? Supposedly better, all this to make it all better because the private sector and the billionaires know better. Their own report that was commissioned by the Rand Corporation, which is a libertarian think tank, showed that nope, they did not perform any better. And matter of fact, the traditional public schools in many cases did better than those charters. Oops. 
Sorry we've disrupted your entire public school systems, everybody. But anyway, so let's add another factor to this. So now, now you have, you basically say you, you pay the charters first, right? And on top of that, you also are part of an organization like the Bradley Foundation or the Koch Industries or whatever, that you're also kind of lobbying both local school district people, like people who live in a particular school district and the state governments to basically cut taxes, right? You can cut taxes, cut taxes, cut school taxes, cut school taxes, cut school taxes, right? And make sure that you do not have a, an adequate funding, uh, like a funding mechanisms to ensure that schools have the money that they need, right? So now I'm in a school district. I'm finding that they're, they're cutting taxes, right? More students are coming into the district, right? The taxes are remained flat or have kind of gone down. I have less money to, um, to work with, right? Less money to work with. But that $350,000 that I have to pay to the charter schools remains the same regardless. So that $350,000 over time becomes a larger chunk of the budget. Right. Making those schools have to have larger classes, fewer teachers, drive down salaries. Right. You get the picture. Right. It's the same thing that's happened at all these other government like government agencies. Right. Through kind of the, the neoliberal logic of like, you know, government bad. Right. This is the shock doctrine on slow. The Bradley Foundation had a manual that was literally designed to show people how to do this. <clears throat> all right. Anyways, that's the background of the Bradley Foundation. So uh, here's this. Uh, you got to check out this piece. Again, this is by Cyril Michaleko. It's called uh, Bradley Foundation's Financial Tentacles Now Targeting the Department of Justice. So that organization that is, has seek to decimate public schools <clears throat> is now <clears throat> doing something else. So I'll read you this a little bit. The conservatives running the Bradley Foundation could not accept President Trump's 2020 election loss, so it helped fund an election integrity network in an attempt to add credence to the former president's false claims that there was widespread systemic, uh, systematic election fraud. Oh, and it's run by Cleta Mitchell, the lawyer who was on Trump's call to Georgia asking election officials to find him, to find him uh, 11,700 votes. Now, as Trump faces federal indictment for mishandling classified documents and making false statements and obstruction of justice, the Bradley Foundation is supporting a campaign to undermine the Department of Justice. The Conservative Partnership Institute, again, these institutes play such an outsized role in what has happened to our daily lives. The Conservative Partnership Institute, which it funds and which is led by Mitchell, gave $583,701 in 2021 to the Center for Renewing America, over half the organization's operating budget. This organization is led by a former Trump officials, Jeffrey Clark and Russell Vaught. Clark was a former official at the DOJ, and as the New York Times pointed out, was, quote, the only senior official at the department who tried to help Mr. Trump overturn the 2020 election, unquote. Then Vaught, was director of the Office of Management and Budget and previously wrote an article for Newsweek, quote, is there anything actually wrong with Christian nationalism? <clears throat> As you would expect in their eyes, like Trump's, the former president is a victim of conspiracy by the deep state, which includes the DOJ, not a victim of its own contempt of the rule of law. So that gives you an sense. This is what's going on with the Bradley Foundation now. So now you've got this organization that is dumping a whole bunch of money to weaponize the DOJ so the Republicans can kind of misuse this. So uh, you got to check this out. Um, they they are they are one of these organizations that is having again an outsized influence in our lives, right?
So great piece. Kudos to Cyril for that um, for that publication. Anyways, look, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to get into some of the stuff on Moms for Liberty and the uh, Penridge School Board. Um, but we'll be back right after this quick break. I want to remind you that, look, five bucks a month, where you can help out Raging Chicken, yeah, where you can help out this podcast, get more folks on there, get folks like Chris Hillary on a show like this. Well, how do you do that? Well, you can become a member for as little as five bucks a month. You become a patron of this show by going to patreon.com slash rcpress. Become a patron today. Um, I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Moms for Liberty and a little school district stuff. Right back. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1947. That was the day that many labor historians mark as the beginning of a long decline of the U.S. labor movement. The United States Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act. The bill was named after Republican Senator Robert A. Taft from Ohio. The son of President William Howard Taft, the senator had been a staunch opponent of President Roosevelt's New Deal policies. He continued his anti-working class efforts with a new bill aimed to curb the power of unions. He found an ally in Representative Fred Hartley, a Republican congressman from New Jersey. After World War II, a wave of strikes washed over the nation. Most labor unions had agreed not to go on strike during the war. But frustrations over wages and working conditions mounted. In the years after the conflict ended, five million workers walked the picket line. One in four private sector workers was a union member. Labor was on the march. The Congressional Republicans passed the Taft-Hartley Act in response. The bill ushered in limits on the right to strike. It also began the era of so-called right to work, allowing states to pass laws, making it more difficult for unions to collect dues and represent workers. The new law also required union leaders to sign affidavits that they were not communists, bringing the Red Scare to the House of Labor. A massive rally at Madison Square Garden in New York City asked President Truman to veto the slave labor bill. President Truman did veto the bill, but Congress overrode his veto. Today, only 12% of workers are in unions. 26 states are so-called right-to-work states, to the great detriment of workers' living standards and their health and safety. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Hey, everybody. Everybody, we're back. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, well, as you all know, it's a big week here in Pennsylvania. Yes, next week, Moms for Liberty is holding their annual national summit in Philadelphia. Um, and that begins on the 29th, I believe. <clears throat> right? Um, <clears throat> I just, you, you know, you got to love this. Um, <clears throat> you got to love this, this organization. Uh, Hold on. For some reason, I just accidentally closed that. Um, <clears throat> I closed that. Oh. Anyways, um, as you know, that they are uh, Moms for Liberty is holding their annual summit in uh, Philadelphia. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, in Philadelphia, 
and they are going to be having a, a ton of people show up, especially outside, right? Outside of the, uh, of the Moms for Liberty um, Summit, there will be tons of uh, protesters. Yep. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, and oh, hold on. I know I'm trying to do too many things at once here, and this was a, not a good look for me to... <clears throat> start this without kind of having these things up. I thought I had it all up, um, but we did not. Um, anyways, so as we, as we know that um, Moms for Liberty has been um, deeply influencing everything that's going on. So uh, yes, it's, I just wanted to check the, double check the time. So yes, it is June 29th through um, July 2nd in Philadelphia. Uh, they call this the Joyful Warriors National Summit, which you gotta love. Right. Um, because they are the ones who are saying the most insane things. So just to give you a sense of some of the lineup here, right, of who's going to be speaking at the summit. Of course, headlining, of course, will be Donald Trump. But of course, Ron DeSantis, also a presidential contender, will be there. Nikki Haley, presidential contender, will be there. Um, uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy will be there, also running for president. A bunch of other ones, too, as well. Um, some of the less known ones. Um, what I found especially interesting about this, uh, about some of this, uh, just looking at these people again, just drives me absolutely crazy. Um, there's, it was just found, we just found out, right? This is kind of a day or two ago that in addition to um, all those Republican contenders that Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who was running uh, for president on the Democratic ticket, uh, will also be speaking at Moms for Liberty. How's that for, uh, you know, uh, a man of the people, so to speak, right? Um, at some point, we're going to have to have a discussion about Robert F. Kennedy Jr., um, uh, you know, more extensively. Now, look, I, I should say this. I got a little back and forth with my friend Sean on this. Um, look, do I believe that, uh, that, that RFK Jr. Is, has a shot at winning the Democratic nomination? No, I don't. Um, so why even deal with it? Well, because look, there's there's a certain group of, uh, say, people on the, say, broad left, for example, um, that get roped into this stuff, right? Um, because he says things that connect with some, you know, um, positions on the left, right? This is the whole Jimmy Dore group of, of people, right? The people that believe that politics, like the way that you have politics is that you say the right things, right? Um, but have, but don't do any of the organizing or something like this, or, uh, you know, whatever it might be, right? You could say the right things without looking at the record, right? Or having any sense of, of political strategy whatsoever, but whatever. Another person that will be speaking at the Moms for Liberty uh, Joyful Warriors Summit will be the one and the only Jordan Adams. Now, Jordan Adams, of course, is a head of Vermilion. Vermilion um, Education, which has been instrumental in some of the recent discussions uh, in the Penridge School Board uh, meetings, right? Jordan Adams was a graduate of Hillsdale College. He ran their kind of like uh, four or, you know, those those uh, uh, religious charter schools system for Hillsdale. He has been out there pushing Hillsdale College's 1776 curriculum for quite some time. 
well, he decided to kind of break out on his own last year and founded the Vermilion Education, right? So basically, you know, it gives that little bit of distance <clears throat> from Hillsdale College, that Christian for-profit, increasingly problematic organization, and says, oh, we are just this nonpartisan, non-religious, you know, um, education consulting group to just try to help out. But they're basically taking the, the Hillsdale College's whole agenda, and he's just kind of trying to push it here. Um, and so even though he told um, to local reporters from the Bucks County Reporter, I believe it was, that, you know, he said, well, you know, I'm nonpartisan. I'm not kind of like all this, you know, I'm just here just, you know, trying to help out. Um, he will be there at the uh, Moms for Liberty Summit um, speaking there as well. So good to know. So what are you going to be doing, right? Uh, anybody going out there? Anybody going down to Philadelphia? Um, there was a great piece in uh, the Bucks County Beacon by Jenny Stevens doing exactly what we need um, uh, kind of media organizations to be doing is giving us a connection to like um, how we begin to um, push back and how we organize. So um, the, uh, bah, 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 let me just pull it up here real quick. So part of what's going to be happening here in Philadelphia, there's going to be a range of organizations that are going to be protesting there. Um, it's being kind of fronted by say people for the American way is one of the main organizing groups um, for what's happening. Um, for the organizing and for the resistance. Um, <clears throat> um, they are organizing the rally. So here's some of the information. Um, links for this will be in the kind of show notes, of course. Um, so on June 30th, Moms for Liberty is hosting their annual summit. So it begins on the 29th. There's this thing that's happening at the American, uh, uh, Ameri uh, the American Museum of American Museum of the American Revolution. There are um, some protesting that happened there on the 29th. But on June 30th, the Moms for Liberty is hosting their annual summit designed to pull more people into their hateful movement. We won't let it go unchallenged. We are pulling together our grandparents for truth and our allies in person and online to defend the freedom to learn to fight back um, against authoritarianism and censorship. Right? You're organ it's organized by the People for the American Way. It's a rallying call to defend freedom and to learn to fight back. Oh, look, I just said that. Um, there's information about where it is, but here's the key stuff. So um, the main protest that is going to be going on on the 30th is going to start um, at 9 a.m. in Philadelphia. Um, it will begin from the corner of Market Street and North 12th Street in downtown Philadelphia. Um, that is literally on the sidewalk across the street from the Marriott where the, um, where the Moms for Liberty is holding their, um, their summit, right? Um, they're saying, you know, they're, the official one is from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., but I guarantee you that this, this, there's, there's more that is going on. Um, there are going to be elected officials and organized local activists are going to um, be kind of holding kind of like a teaching um, there and protesting the Moms for Liberty's um, information or Moms for Liberty's summit. Right. Uh, and Philly is, you know, kind of probably not the place that you want to be uh, hosting this summit. But, you know, I understand why they're doing it. They're doing it for the backdrop. They're claiming America. Um, but Philadelphia is not going to be very welcoming to these folks. That's for sure. There's information on the uh, website for people for the American way. Just go people for the American way and click on that take action button. Uh, and it'll give you um, information on how to respond to the event, um, how to let people know you're coming and where to go and what to show up and what's what's going to happen. So um, that's happening there on Friday. So just as a, re, you know, as a reminder for Moms for Liberty stuff too as well, I mean, there were some stories that came out this week that 
just really crystallize who these people are. Right? So uh, they try to present themselves as like, we're just a bunch of moms that want to do this. But yet another, right? So this is like, this is this just happened out in Indiana, right? So a Moms for Liberty chapter in Indiana, right, had to kind of go out. And, well, they didn't have to, but they, they eventually came to pressure and did, right? Um, basically um, uh, started getting a lot of slack for their newsletter. Now, you know, again, what, what was it? Did they, were they proposing kind of anti-LGBTQ stuff or were they, you know, um, being hateful against, uh, you know, people of color? Oh, no, no, that's just their normie stuff. Right? That's what they do all the time. But their newsletter this time decided that, okay, uh, this, this Indiana chapter decided that it'd be a great idea, right, um, to quote Hitler, right? So this was in Hamilton County, Indiana. Right. So the chapter of the organization posted on its newsletter, which is called the Parent Brigade. Right. So this is on Wednesday. Right. On the front page of their newsletter. And this was posted on their Facebook page. It's taken down now. But, you know, lots of people got screenshots of this that they've been posting up the reporting. Um, they had a big quote, upper right hand side. It said, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. With that little dash, say, by who's the quotation by? Adolf Hitler. Yep. How about that? As the New Republic reports, uh, a Moms for Liberty chapter has apologized after receiving blowback for quoting Hitler in its newsletter, but they still justified the quotation. Right? This is why I want to read this part. Moms for Liberty recently branded it as an extremist group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. The Southern Poverty Law Center says Moms for Liberty is a, quote, far-right organization that engages in anti-student inclusion activities, right, unquote. The Hamilton County, Indiana chapter of the organization posted its newsletter, The Parent Brigade, on Facebook Wednesday morning. On the front page was the, quote, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. The group didn't even try to hide that it was a uh, Hitler quotation, citing the Nazi leader just under the text. The newsletter sparked swift backlash, both... Um, with both the local Democratic and Republican parties condemning the use of the quote. And by Wednesday night, the Moms for Liberty chapter had updated the newsletter to include context under the quotation. And this is their context, right? The quote from a horrific leader should, be, should put parents on alert, the update read. If the government has control over our children today, they control our country's future. We, the people, must be vigilant and protect children from an overreaching government, right? By Thursday morning, as outcry grew, the quote had been removed entirely from the group's newsletter. The chapter chairwoman also released a statement apologizing for quoting Hitler in the first place. In place of Hitler's words, the chapter moved up a message from the Moms for Liberty National founders Tiffany Justice and Tina Descovich. Their message was headlined, Moms for Liberty will not be intimidated by hate groups, an apparent response to the SPLC extremist label. Right? So, like, what's what, you know, this is this is like a great example of playing the uh, uh, the dog whistle politics and the kind of extremist kind of white nationalist politics at the same time, right? So they put the Hitler quote up there, right? Just to let everybody in the know, everybody in the know, no, this is yes, yes, we know. We know what our fearless leader says, right? But then also being able to twist that when asked about it publicly to say that, oh, no, we're saying that the government is the, we're not saying that we need to control the youth. We're saying the government, the government is doing that. You're not like our kind of like specific ideological far right ideological kind of Christian nationalism is not the problem. 
even though that's what Hitler loved. No, 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 that's not it. It's the government who's attempting to kind of make sure that we have a country that is uh, that includes all voices and people. They're the real demons. It's a great, I mean, look, you think about that. On one hand, we're going to quote Hitler. We're going to put Hitler right out there. So we're, we're not going to, we're going to be unashamed of it, right? To the people on the inside. But to the rest of the world, said, oh, no, we meant that we were, t- we were talking about the government. But, you know, whatever. Perfect example. There was also this week, it just came out, was it yesterday or two days ago? It came out a couple days ago uh, in Vice, right? In Vice News, right? Um, they have this great uh, report by David Gilbert called Inside Moms, Mom for Liberty's Close Relationship with the Proud Boys. Right? And across the United States, Moms for Liberty's chapters have forged close relationships with far-right extremist groups. Right? This is uh, just kind of a, just fantastic reporting here. Um, <clears throat> so uh, and there, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a story that sets the frame for this article, so I'm not going to read that all to you because it's like, you know, about this one particular chapter to kind of like help break out the show the story. But there's this one chapter, this is kind of like uh, gives you a sense of what they're writing about. So it says, it's not just the Proud Boys that Moms for Liberty has allegedly gotten involved with, however. A Vice News investigation has uncovered links between numerous Moms for Liberty chapters and extremist groups like the Proud Boys, Three Percenters, Sovereign Citizen Groups, QAnon Conspiracists, Christian Nationalists, and in one case, with the founder of the AK-47 worshiping Rod of Iron Ministries Church right here in Pennsylvania. Around the country, Moms for Liberty has formed links with extremist groups and militias, which are joining forces with the parental rights group at protests and school board meetings and turning and turn fishing and turn pushing the already far right organization toward an even more extreme ideology. Quote, there's an ongoing campaign by these neo-Nazi groups to radicalize some of the some of these more benign patriot MAGA groups. And it's working because I've seen more Nazi content creeping into posts from Moms for Liberty people recently. Uh, unquote, a researcher who is known as Trash City and who closely tracks Moms for Liberty activity told Vice News earlier this month. And earlier this month, a day after former President Donald Trump announced he would speak at the group's annual summit alongside fellow Republican presidential candidates Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, the Southern Poverty Law Center designated Moms for Liberty as an anti-government extremist organization for the first time. Quote, the group's primary goal are to fru- goals are to fuel right-wing hysteria and to make the world a less comfortable or safe place for certain students, primarily those who are black, LGBTQ, or who come from LGBTQ families, unquote, uh, the SPLC said in a report published this week. In an email statement to Vice News, Moms for Liberty dismissed the designation as name-calling and said, no amount of hate from groups like the SPLC is going to stop what its members are doing, right? And it goes on. So it's great reporting here, but, but I mean, this is kind of the important thing, right? Is like, you know, there's the public facing stuff that, you know, if you just look at their statements, that's online, which they say on their website, it seems like a fairly benign organization. Yeah. Maybe conservative, but just kind of relatively benign that they're just caring. They're doing what they're supposed to do. But behind the surface, you have this organizational network that is well-funded by multimillionaires, right? Political insiders from the Republican party, right? And is building these links, right, pulling together this network, helping kind of establish this network of far-right extremist groups, including those ones who are who are, have no problem in committing violence um, for their agenda and their ideology, right? That's why people have been pushing to tell the Marriott that they should kind of stop this. That's why 
you have workers at the Museum of the American History basically kind of were protesting um, against Bombs for Liberty being able to hold their kind of the reception on Thursday night, uh, the 29th, uh, at the Museum of American History. Because the, Amer- uh, not the Museum of the American Revolution, I'm sorry, Museum of the American Revolution, because the people that work there said, look, we've been trying extraordinarily hard to kind of like basically be more inclusive in this instead of just just being about the founding of the white people, but really thinking more broadly about the American Revolution, really think more broadly about American history. Um, they have a, a new display in there about the kind of African-American roles in the American Revolution and so on like this. And then say this, this is like a slap in the face for all the work that we've been doing, right? This runs counter to everything that we've been doing um, for decades. And now we've worked all this stuff to get us to this place. And now you're bringing in this hate group. That's why they've been pushing it back against it. So it's only when you're looking at that context, right? Where you're the, this is, a, oh, should we allow a group we disagree with to speak at our event? Well, no, no, that's not the question. Should you allow an organization that is actively working to cultivate a network of extremists and militant extremists who have links to neo-Nazi stuff, should you help facilitate and provide cover for their organization? That's what the issue is. Are you going to aid and abet that organization in appearing mainstream? That's what the issue is. But, you know, again, these are hard to have these kind of conversations with folks. So as I was looking at that, too, as well, it came off, you know, I just was reminded once again that another, and so we, I'm sure we talked about this probably at the, at the time that this occurred in the show. This happened back in April, I guess, reports are coming out about this. But this was a <clears throat> um, Monroe County, right, if I believe, right? Yeah, Monroe County, Pennsylvania. Right. Another like leader of the Moms for Liberty chapter um, of the in Monroe County, um, Moms for Liberty chapter in Monroe County, Pennsylvania. Her name was Nicole, Nicole Prussman. Right. Um, <clears throat> basically, well, let me just read this. This is from uh, the LGBTQ Nation um, by Greg Owen. Um, I think uh, the Daily Beast had a great report on this, except they, they just it's all locked behind a paywall right now. So I just I'm giving you this one instead. So here it is. A leader from Moms for Liberty has been accused of hijacking a dead woman's Facebook account and faces a summary trial for harassment. She then allegedly sent an N-word laden text to the deceased woman's surviving husband after she took out credit cards in his name, right? Again, bad apples all in one place. Nicole Prussman, the the 42-year-old mother and self-described, quote, education consultant, unquote, was until March the leader of the Monroe County, Pennsylvania chapter of Moms for Liberty, the online collection of Christian nationalists and MAGA mothers responsible for whipping up anti-LGBTQ plus outrage in local school boards and council meetings across the country over the last two years. According to the Daily Beast, Prussman admitted to stealing the laptop of a former friend who was stabbed to death by her babysitter in 2021. Right? So she knew this person. She knew this person was violently murdered. Right? Then this woman, Prussman, spent several months using that woman, the, the woman who was killed, using her Facebook account to harass and intimidate individuals, including New York women who opposed Moms for Liberty's efforts to ban books and censor teachers. Right? Give you an example. Quote, she wrote, everyone say hi to real dumb worst word you can call a woman because she earned it. Prussman posted in the, um, about the woman in March 14th. March 14th. Quote, can't wait 
for her to meet her karma. It's already beginning. But until then, I think a taste of her own medicine is amusing. However, I will be sharing legally and everywhere, unquote. And she went on. You're an effing coward and shameful example of a human. You're effing pissant and blah, blah, goes on. I don't want to keep this, right? I don't want to see what else she said. But again, this woman, head of Moms for Liberty in Roe County, right? You know, and again, it's like, okay, look, there's bad people everywhere, right? Then they're not limited just by by kind of ideology, right? There's going to be horrible people. There's going to be people kind of like, you know, kind of like mental illness problems that send them off a thing or just, or they're just horrible people. What's astonishing about Moms for Liberty is the concentration of them in that organization, right? That's the issue. So anyways, they will be in Philadelphia for their joyful warrior summit um, beginning uh, again. They're having their opening welcome to Philadelphia uh, at the uh, um, museum of American revolution on Thursday, July 29th that evening. And the, the uh, summit kicks off as well as the protest early Monday, early, uh, sorry, Friday morning, uh, the 30th. Um, and you can head down to uh, Market and 12th and join the protest, right? <clears throat> uh, this, I, I'm not going to go into this entirely uh, uh, too much here, in part because we're going to have Chris Ullery on the show on Monday. Okay. Um, let me see if we get back to it. Um, ba, ba, ba. So a new piece that was just published this morning uh, says email show how religious liberties law firm have influenced Bucks and York schools. Right. So if you remember, we had Chris Lurie on the show um, not too long ago to talk about um, this first round of reporting. They, uh, uh, he and Bethany Rogers, um, had did this uh, RTK, this right to know request of school boards across the uh, Commonwealth, right? Just to try to figure out um, how much influence these kind of like, you know, these right wing organizations have had um, in other school boards, right? Obviously, the Courier Times is based in Bucks County. And so we saw the influence of people like Paul Martino um, and so Moms for Liberty and other things. Um, and knew, knew that there was this religious law firm that it was had some involvement, what was happening in Central and Central Buck School District. But then the question was, right, as good investigative reporters do, they said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, we know this is going on, but how widespread is this? Is this something specific to Central Buck so across the across the Commonwealth or beyond? <clears throat> and so they basically started going, looking at where there's been these kind of unsettled school board meetings and found out that, nope, it's definitely not just Central Bucks, Right. And when I had, we had Chris on last time, um, Chris kind of walked us through what we're seeing kind of in different places in the Commonwealth. This is the kind of the next report that has come out since then, right? And um, it's focused on like showing that, you know, the involvement of the Independence Law Center, this kind of like right-wing Christian, uh, Christian legal organization, um, it goes deeper than we first thought. So just as your teaser for that, right, this is the beginning of this article. It says, a conservative religious liberties law firm that has encouraged Central Bucks School District officials to embrace restrictions on transgender athletes, offering them a ready-made policy and resources to promote it. The legal group, the Harrisburg-based Independence Law Center, originally partnered with Central Bucks to, um, to help with its library policy and defend the district against allegations that it creates a toxic environment for LGBTQ students. 
But emails obtained through a public records request show that in Central Bucks, as in other communities, the ILC attorneys are treating their initial relationship with officials as a jumping off point to boost right-wing priorities. Not only did the law firm last year draft a policy that would bar transgender girls from participating in female school athletics, but also sent the Central Bucks superintendent and board chair background, background material, bolstering the idea and introducing them to a Nebraska professor who would testify in support of it. All of this happened behind the scenes, unbeknownst to the public, and even to school board members who weren't in the voting, who were in the voting minority. Right? Sound familiar? Right? So definitely check out Chris's article. Um, uh, again, this is Chris Ollery and Bethany Rogers. You can check that out. It's in, um, you go to phillyburbs.com, right? Uh, if you're a subscriber to the Courier Times, you can get that there too as well. It's also published in the York Dispatch uh, record. Um, do check it out. Great piece. But we will have uh, Chris Ollery on the show on Monday, um, June 26th at 7 p.m. Um, to talk about his piece. So I'm going to leave that one up there. All right, so to close out the night, and we're, again, we're going to talk about this more, and we're probably going to do a, uh, a special show on this at some point uh, because this has just been, it's been crazy. So the big thing that happened this week um, locally here was in the Penridge School Board was having its curriculum meetings and then its school board meeting. I remember last week we talked about the disastrous cancellation and rescheduling and cancellation um, that the, uh, the, school board, um, uh, the school board majority kind of I don't even call executed or fumbled into or stumbled or did whatever the heck you want to call that. Talked about that last week as we were kind of inundated with smoke and all this other kind of stuff. So we talked about that, what all happened there. This week, um, or that was actually, I guess, two weeks ago. Um, but so this week you had the, uh, the, the curriculum meeting, the policy committee meeting, and the personnel committee, right? And they were just huge number of people turned out. Um, in part, one of the main draws was during the um, curriculum committee meeting, Jordan Adams, who is the CEO of Vermilion Education, was to give his presentation to the school board and <clears throat> the public. Now, he wasn't there in person. He was there through a Zoom call, right? Um, but it was the first time that anybody actually, anybody outside of uh, Jordan Blomgren, maybe um, <clears throat> Ricky Chaikin, and maybe... Uh, Megan Bannis Clemens actually had to interact with this guy, <clears throat> right? So the school board meeting, just as for starters, right? The school board meeting was six hours and 20 minutes long, I think was the final count. <clears throat> it was, I, it was a marathon, right? Jordan, Adams's presentation was uh, about 45, well, maybe a little bit less than 45, maybe a half an hour, 40, well, 35 minutes of that, plus the kind of some of the responses and questions of his stuff, maybe about 45 minutes, is about an hour, let's just say about an hour kind of total uh, after he was questioning that, right? <clears throat> so a few things to say about what happened at the meeting are important. First of all, um, and by the way, I should say this like right up front, is say if what I've been doing um, for these school board meetings since because I think for historical purposes and for organizing purposes, what's happening in these meetings is, is so important, right? That we kind of remember what's going on and have access to this up. So to ask somebody to sit through a six hour and 20 minute meeting is a lot to ask, right? So what I've been trying to do is uh, clip out um, some lots of the public comment and kind of key moments in some of the, what's happening on the board. Now, again, 
I don't claim to be a, a to be chronicling everything that is happening on the school boards. I'm really trying to focus on those things that are kind of surrounding community efforts to kind of push back against this right wing extremism on the board. Right. So there's a lot of things that happen, like students get awards for kind of work, things like that, that I'm not clipping out, not because that's not important, but because that's not the focus of what we do at Raging Chicken, right? So I have a, have a uh, playlist on our YouTube channel, right? And if you want to go to our YouTube channel, it's just, you know, simply um, you go to kind of, you go to YouTube, right? It says YouTube slash Raging Chicken Press, right? YouTube slash Raging Chicken Press. And the playlist is called uh, PA School Board Wars. Okay, if you go to that playlist, that has all the clips of what goes on. So for example, uh, what I did for, I sat through this meeting, spent the entire, like, well, both the night Tuesday during the actual meeting and most of my day on Wednesday going through these and clipping things out. So I've got Jordan Blomgren basically introduced Jordan Adams, Jordan Adams full presentation um, and the response uh, by some of the curriculum supervisors, um, a whole ton of uh, community comment um, and their pushback against both Vermillion and the extremism on the board. Some key exchanges by board members, <clears throat> right? basically showing, documenting that a section of the board, the major, the, the, the four-person minority of the board is unaware of actually decisions that are being made and are forced to do what the, those of us in the public are doing is basically respond to this stuff practically on the spot in response, right? So that all took place. So Jordan Adams, he, goes, he basically gives this presentation and it's like, <clears throat> first of all, Penridge is the only public school district and the first public school district that Jordan Adams is working with. As we've talked about on the show, he was hired practically under the cover of night, right? Because Jordan Blomgren, right, the curriculum chair, basically worked out a contract separately from not even telling anybody else and sprung it on everybody 24 hours before the meeting and then forced through a vote to hire this guy. Right. And as people pointed out at the time, <clears throat> like even like the public and members of the, the uh, of the school board, they're in the minority, even though they're all pretty much conservative Republicans, but they at very least kind of no process. So they were caught unaware. So they said, look, he's getting paid one hundred twenty five dollars an hour plus expenses, plus travel. Right. And. There's no cap on how much he can be billed. So we learned that, okay, he's already billed the district for, was it 60 hours? Something like this. We already paid him $7,500, not including the time that he spent on that meeting the other night, right? And nobody has seen the results of it. He issued some kind of report to the school board minority or majority, right? To a few of them that went on May 9th. Nobody has seen that. So this is the first chance that anybody in the public, like people that are paying for him, right? Because that's taxpayer money that these people are. So we have never seen it, right? And the report and all the kind of stuff that he was going to be presenting, nobody got the materials ahead of time. So there's that. So you're paying this guy $125 an hour. You've already paid him $7,500, right? He's been working on this apparently for months now. <coughs> and he shows up for a presentation Literally, it seems like in 
a spare room in his apartment that he just moved into. That's what it looked like. There's like a window behind it that's open, probably because there's no AC in there, so he's got to have air come in. Right? He's got a PowerPoint presentation that he shares with everybody that it violates like every principle of PowerPoint presentations that you, you want to talk about death by PowerPoint. This guy did death by PowerPoint, right? Using like the default fonts for everything that's up there. And when you, you don't have enough room on the, on one slide, what do you do? You just make the font smaller. So he's projecting this up on the screen, right? In like six point font, this tiny font, you can't even read it. Right from if you're sitting in the audience, I was watching this stuff at home. So like at least when they zoom in on it, I could see the stuff. But people who were there, the public who were there, they couldn't read it. And who else was there? The curriculum supervisors. Right. So they had not seen this stuff. This guy is there to advise the curriculum. Curriculum had never seen it. And yet they were there and they were able to respond as real professionals like nobody else. <clears throat> so anyways, he gives this presentation. And like, I said this to my son, I said, you know, you could have done a better job than he did. I mean, basically what he did is that he used language that sounded just kind of neutral. Oh, we thought we kind of increased. We see that we're, we need to do the test scores and how do we go about having test scores? And well, we kind of, you know, we can do this and we can add this and we can, I can, I'm looking for some things that we can add to the curriculum, blah, 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 blah. And then he proposes a curriculum, which is basically the 1776 curriculum, right? It was not specific to Penridge. It was not specific to the curriculum that has already been written. No, he's proposing an entire new curriculum. That was for the social studies side of things, right? So he wants to start first graders on Near East ancient history and American history from 1776 to 1787. <coughs> first graders. It, it was shocking. It was shocking. I want to, I want to, I, I, oh, wait, sorry. <clears throat> I want to, I want to just, I want to play something for you if I can get there real quick. Um, let me just go. <clears throat> because if I say it, I'm going to spend about 20 minutes saying it because I'm just, it was so incredibly inferior. This is it. So um, Kevin Foster, <clears throat> who's been very active in kind of supporting this, he came up after brilliant education. Now this is at 1120 at night, I think he says, right? So this is like the school board meeting has already been going on for what? 730, 830, 930, 30, 11, almost five hours at this point. Right. And so, uh, <clears throat> Kevin Foster comes up after that presentation and sums up what he just saw and I, in a way that is like right on point. So I'm just going to play this little clip from Kevin Foster. Oh, yeah. They let him go. Here he comes. Uh, Kevin Foster, Hilltown Township. Um, wow. What a presentation, guys. Um, wow. I don't even know what, what time is it. 11.20 at night. Incredible. Um, you know, first things first, I have a six-year-old. Uh, she goes into first grade. Next year, she likes coloring. Uh, she likes playing outside in the dirt. She loves swings for brothers and sisters. Um, world history, ancient Near East. <laughs> Does anyone else find that absolutely absurd? And he goes on. But that, I mean, right there, 
like literally was the reaction. I have so many people like, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea about what you're talking about? You want to, the six-year-old, you want to ancient Near East history is what you want to start with? And he had no answers to any of this stuff. All he had was this pre-made kind of curriculum map from the 1776 curriculum from Hillsdale that he was just going to kind of like say, here you go. This is the curriculum we want, <clears throat> right? Now, the thing is, right, as much as you have the extremists on the board that are forcing this through and forcing through Vermilion, right, and basically hired this Vermilion and this guy Jordan Adams, we should be 100% clear that the minority people on the board, right, you know, the, the, the Republican faction that is not part of the extremists that are pushing things through, but the, the conservative Republican faction, which includes people like Joan Cullen, right, are all for the Hillsdale curriculum. Right. They are not they do not disagree with Hillsdale curriculum. Matter of fact, Joan Cullen will say and has said publicly during these meetings that she is the one that proposed it. Right. So let's be 100 percent clear as we move forward that because Joan Cullen is calling out the misdeeds of the, the board majority, that does not mean that Joan Cullen is therefore a hero. Right. We have to be able to kind of think beyond good and bad here. We have to be able to think about one. We have to stop these people from doing things that are blatantly illegal, immoral and unethical. Right. And could potentially just really significantly and seriously disrupt. Our kids lives, as several parents said at that meeting. That's we got we have to we have to get those people out. And we have to prevent that. But then we also have the issue of the ongoing right-wing turn of this school board. Right? And the only one of that kind of, as far as I know, the only one of that kind of the minority, the four people that are voting against the extremists, the only one who is not completely on board with this kind of like Christian nationalist kind of like America Right, um, kind of you know, the Hillsdale curriculum. The only one on the board maybe is Ron Wirtz. <clears throat> I don't know that for sure because I haven't heard him talk. I haven't heard him speak extensively about that. I have heard him say that you want to basically a fair-minded curriculum that's going to prepare students to critically think and move forward. Right, that you want to basically have these public conversations. You want transparency, discussion with the community, all that stuff. Right, and I think that's why, for example, the Democratic Party, local Democratic Party, has endorsed him in his school board run for the fall. Right. In addition to uh, other candidates. <clears throat> but Joan Cullen, right, she started this. <laughs> right. Let's be clear. She started this, but she at the very least knows procedure and knows the law. So we, we can like we can argue against Joan Cullen. Right. In terms of her ideology, in terms of what she's done to the school district, in terms of like, you know, calling out students as Marxists and Nazis and on social media. I mean, attending the January 6th kind of uh, stop the steel rally in D.C., right? I mean, we could still remember all of that stuff, but at least say, okay, look, Joan Cullen doesn't want to be sued, right? She doesn't want to be responsible for getting the school district sued, right? And she knows that like, if you are going to carry out actions that you, and you have, and you're basically saying there's been a violation of policy that your policy has to be clear. 
you can't just say it violates a policy and then expect everyone to be on board. No, if you say this is, there was a big discussion about explicit material or, or, or before they got to the Vermilion earlier on in that meeting. But if you want to say explicit material, you got to be clear about what that is. You can't just say it and expect everybody else shares that same definition. That's in your little kind of brain, Jordan Blomgren, I'm talking to you. You got to be explicit about it, right? And that that's good process, right? But just because it's good process doesn't mean it's good for the school, that it's good for democracy, that it's good for it. But it is, at the very least, a baseline, right? So I'm all on board with that. But let's let's not turn Joan Cullen into a hero because she hates Megan Bannis Clements and Jordan Blomgren, right? Let's be clear about that. I mean, seriously. <clears throat> There's enough interpersonal hatred going on there, right? But let's not confuse that for political differences. <clears throat> Anyways. So, so that goes on, right? And w w that's, what, that's what he's there to do. The other thing that happens is suddenly, and, and again, Joan Collin points this out, he was, if you remember the original contract, he was hired to kind of deal with the social studies curriculum. But the whole first part of his presentation was about explicit materials in literature. It was about the English curriculum, which wasn't part of the original contract. And Joan Collin raises it, right? So wait a minute. These guys, when did this get added on? And he asked Jordan Adams, that, well, I was told to do this. And sure enough, other members of the board confirmed, yes, I was told. Yes, yes, we told him to do that too as well. But that wasn't part of the contract. But then you basically say you're going to add that on. Why? Because that's part of what the Moms for Liberty agenda is. Right? <clears throat> so not only does he give this, this poor presentation, <clears throat> like with this, like, Font, you can't, you get, and, and think that's disconnected. One of the, uh, uh, some of the curriculum directors, the two curriculum directors were asked to come up and kind of see if they had any questions or responses or discussions for Adams. Now he's up there on the screen on Zoom and so they have to do this. And again, they have no preparation because none of the materials are provided to anybody. But because they are such amazing professionals, because they know the curriculum inside and out, they're, they basically just like turn his little quote unquote presentation into like, <clears throat> I don't even want to call it lace, Swiss cheese, right? Wet paper towel. I don't know what you want to call it, right? <clears throat> but basically one point after another, I said, well, look, you just don't understand what this curriculum is. And they said like, well, the reason why you suggest up here that you have, that the students should read these books. The reason that those books that you are suggesting are not on the curriculum map or for the kind of high school curriculum is because our students have already read those books. They're already in it. And he's like, oh, he doesn't know. And then he says, he sits there and he reads this quote unquote explicit passage, right? Or this traumatic passage and says, I don't think teachers should be dealing with that. And again, curriculum director comes up, Sarah Raber basically says, well, listen, listen, what you don't understand or maybe this was the English one. Oh, well, either way, <clears throat> so what you don't seem to understand is we're reading this one book that deals with some of these traumatic events, right? In partnership with the counselors, right? That it's designed as a whole community kind of ways of addressing this stuff to, to allow for, so we can expose students to the resources that are available to them 
as we're having these discussions. The teachers aren't handling this. This is a partnership with this other stuff. And he was completely clueless about that. He also knew nothing about the history of the curriculum, about why things were done in the way that they were doing. And yet the curriculum directors come up, or curriculum supervisors come up, and they're able to talk really professionally, extensively about why things are the way they are, to which he had no answer. Not only that, you had multiple teachers show up to support those, those curriculum supervisors and saying they're awesome and to resist Vermillion. It was such a great showing of teachers come up. It was great. So <clears throat> what also happens, you have those curriculum directors come up, right? But during the meeting, right, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> there were initial rumors floating around that they were going to get rid of the curriculum supervisors. And then it was brought up at the last school board meeting. The board members, oh, look, this is just part of the discussion, right? Ricky Chaikin, while well, I was saying, who's like a head of personnel. So this is part of the discussion. We're trying to find best ways of having resources and all this other kind of stuff. This is just kind of part of our discussion, blah, 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 blah. They do this all the time. But people suspected they just hired this guy from Vermilion, and they're going to pay him $125 an hour to rewrite the curriculum and at somehow at the same time, they're talking about eliminating the curriculum supervisors. Connection? Maybe. And so as they're getting ready to hear from Vermillion, get ready to hear from Jordan Adams, somebody apparently is checking the school board website. <clears throat> Notice that the agenda for the following meeting, that's the next night, this was on Wednesday, the second meeting, item, uh, the item agenda there, guess what? elimination of the curriculum supervisors. They were going to put it up for a vote. And they put it in there just 24 hours ahead of time so they could get there under the gun. And had not somebody been paying attention, they wouldn't have known it. So now you've got these curriculum supervisors who are at this meeting to kind of respond to Jordan Adams are finding out in real time that their positions will be going to be voted on to be eliminated the next day. And once again, the minority of the board, right? Joan Cullen, Ron Wirtz and the like. <clears throat> Even Christine Batiki, right? Who ran with the extremists. She even had a, a sticker on on Wednesday night that said, stop Vermillion. How about that? <laughs> I mean, like, what world are we living in? This is how extreme it's gotten, right? <clears throat> but anyways... So those other board members are like, you can't do this. You can't just eliminate these positions. Why didn't we know about this? You, There's laws about how you inform people about whether or not their gonna, job is going to be eliminated. There's a process. Did you even talk to them about it? And like the extremists on the board, Ricky Chaikin, Jordan Blomgren, Megan Banis Clemens, <clears throat> right? And the two silent guys who are little freaking lap dogs for those extremists. Wouldn't, didn't say a word the entire meeting, even went directly asked, what is your position on this? They just stared blankly at the person asking the question and did not respond. It was just unbelievable. How spineless can you be? If you are going to vote for something, you are publicly elected and you are not even going to tell people about why you're doing what you're doing. It just, it was insane. <clears throat> Maybe they've got something. Maybe they've got something on them, right? Maybe there's some, like, shadowy thing going on. And they say, if you don't do this, you're going to, I don't know. You know, whatever. This is, like, my, like, you know, intrigue uh, stuff going on, right? My Dungeons & Dragons version of this thing. Like, the Wizards of Thay are doing this, blah, blah, blah. 
Red Wizards of Thay. Ricky, Megan, and Jordan. <laughs> Whatever. But anyways, that's going on in this, uh, you know, in the school board meeting. And, and they're going to fight. And so that's like complete chaos. And that ends with no conclusion about what's going to happen. Turns out the next night, spoiler alert, they tabled that discussion. And I don't, I, I have no, I, I haven't watched the entire meeting yet from Wednesday. Uh, just cause it would, that, that the Tuesday meeting, the six hour and 20 minute meeting was like, took so much out of me. Um, so I'm only partway through the one, but again, they voted to table that. Um, and yeah, they voted to table that. And the question is, will it come up again? We don't know. Right. So people thanked the board for changing their minds. However, um, it's not clear that they actually changed their minds. They just tabled it so they wouldn't have to deal with it. Um, last or Wednesday night, most likely because I believe, um, because of the legal trouble that would have gotten them into. Right. So, by, by, I mean, look, there was tons of public comments. There was amazing things were said. Please do go check out PA School Board Wars playlist on, um, on our YouTube page, right? It's, uh, you know, YouTube slash Raging Chicken Press, uh, all one word. Go check that out if you want to kind of see some of the highlights. Uh, There's no way I could possibly go through all of them there, but uh, they're, they're phenomenal. I do want to point out a couple things that I that I thought were really awesome um, from members of the community. Right, um, the first one comes from uh, Heather Young um, gave a comment. Um, this was not about the Vermilion contract, but this was about this kind of explicit material. Jordan Blomgren did this thing where I just like she's like, there's a book called Identical, okay. And this book is, um, by Ellen Hopkins, right? It's called identical. And it was part, it was in the library. It wasn't taught in the classes, right? From, from what I understand, from what I believe, what I understand. Right. Um, but, uh, and it deals with some tough, tough topics, right? It's, uh, it deals with, uh, uh, sexual abuse of children. And there's, uh, it's fiction, right? Um, But it, you know, uh, most of Ellen Hopkins' work, right? If you read her other books, uh, uh, they deal with difficult topics, right? And Jordan, and and so that was one of the books that was flagged for review, right? So remember the board passed this new, um, you know, this new review thing as a way of banning books. Um, And this book actually went through that, their own review process, Right. And it was deemed to be okay to remain in the library. I think it still had to then be like, it was put on this list where maybe would have to get parental consent or, you know, something like this, but it was, you know, it it passed through and Jordan Blomgren would not have it because that's one of the ones that moms for Liberty tells her that they must ban. Right. So she's, I'm going to go see, and you're going to, you're going to see how explicit this is. So she proceeds to read after people said, wait, 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 let the kids get out of here first. If you, you know, there's like kids, young kids here, but like not high school kids, even younger than that here, you, you know, which are, okay, I'll give them time to get out, blah, blah, blah. And she reads these excerpts from this book identical, which just to describe it is the process by which a father 
grooms his daughter into sexual abuse. Right? And it's pretty frank about what happens. Okay? And it's disturbing hearing. Right? It's disturbing not because... Not because it's about sex, because it's not about sex, right? This is the point I want to get to. Not because it describes generally, right? I mean, it's not even super, super specific, right? It uses kind of language that, so that you know exactly what's going on, right? Um, and language that someone who's grooming someone to sexual abuse would use and describes that process from the perspective of kind of like the sister witnessing stuff, right? So Jordan Blomgren then proceeds to read this stuff for like 10 minutes, right? And then says, say, you tell me that's not explicit. You tell me that's not explicit. Tell me that's not explicit. Tell me that's not explicit. That's all she wants. The only question she has. <clears throat> Heather Young, she's a member of the community. She got up and she gave a response to her. And I believe it's the kind of response that we should we should all be using right is that what she basically said was like you are talking about this you're trying to show this as an example of a book being sexually explicit she's like this is not about sex this is not about eroticism this is about abuse and you all up on the board Basically say that you're you know, worried about kids being groomed and all this stuff when this is an anti-grooming book. This is something so people can recognize what that looks like so that kids can see that this is not sex. This is about abuse. And that you can't tell the difference shows you that you are unqualified to make this decision. She was just incredibly powerful. And so I tweeted that one out, especially, but it, again, it's on that same playlist, PA School Board Wars, under the um, last uh, the Tuesday meeting. It, you know, that was critical, right? The second thing I want to point out, which, again, this shows you the, the how parents, are, parents and community members are organizing effectively and thinking more and more strategically what goes on. <clears throat> so at that meeting, I want to say it was Jane Kramer, <clears throat> um, member who came out and first start said this. If, if, I, if I got this wrong, I apologize to whoever brought this up first but I believe it was Jane Kramer who said this first. What she did is she said, look, I mean, after this disastrous meeting, after it was clear that, you know, the, the, this uh, Megan Bannis Clemens and Ricky Chaikin and um, Jordan Blomberg couldn't answer basic questions, didn't know policy, were probably in violation of the law, having all those sorts of problems, right? That, and it was like clearly falling apart, right? I mean, it was like, it, it was, I don't know how they could, I don't know. I don't know how they live with themselves, to be honest with you. Just like the, the amount of shame I would have faced if I was doing this. Ricky Chaikin, for example, she gets up there, she's giving the personnel stuff. Said, well, we wanted to look at the number of personnel, and here's the number of personnel. We look at the growth in administrative bloat. Now, look, as an educator in public edu like that works in kind of public higher ed, administrative bloat is a real thing, right? That you, you're going to say, we're going to get rid of teachers, we're going to suppress faculty, we got we to tell everybody we're in crisis, but we're going to hire more administrators, right? That's a nationwide trend. trend. So Ricky Chaikin puts up this chart saying, look, there's like, look how much there's been this huge increase in administration, right? But we need more teachers and more TAs, so maybe we should blah, 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 blah. Someone in the audience is looking at it and like, wait a minute. 
are those figures for Penridge? And she's like, no, they're national figures. <laughs> like, you're like, like, they're like, we don't have that. We don't have this administrative bloat, right? This is not what you're not. And she's like, well, there's the national. Uh, I don't know what the ones for Penridge are. She was like, I did my research, right? She did research. She found a graph from national trends, right? She didn't even look at the, the, the district's own thing. She's the district school board, right? She's a representative there. And she's uh, and she doesn't even look at, she didn't even know the numbers of her own argument. And then she says, well, if you look at the number of curriculum supervisors compared to other surrounding districts, right? <clears throat> she's got all these numbers up there. She's like, <clears throat> this district, you know, um, uh, Council Rock has like four and, uh, this one has, we have all this. Stuff. And then there's what she doesn't understand is that there's members of the community who are teachers who don't teach at Penridge. They teach at some of these other school districts, right? Or know people, there's other school districts or are familiar enough with what's going on because they've actually done real research to know that what she was saying was absolutely false. They're like, wait a minute. Council Rock has that. They don't, you say they don't have, they have, I know they do, right? Because I work with it. You know, it's like this. Basically, what it seems like she did is that she does, this was her research, right? She took a word, a title called a curriculum supervisor, right? At Penridge. And she said, how many, like, how many curriculum supervisors do they have at these other places? Never stopping to think for a moment that, they might be called something different or they might be combined with a different position. So the title is different. She didn't even look at the job descriptions as comparison. She just looked at the title. So the data was completely unusable as members of the community came up and mentioned. I'm gonna say, when you have data that's corrupt at the beginning, there was this guy, he was a Penridge graduate I think he went to the University of Pittsburgh, right? Worked, he's uh, doing stuff or is continuing graduate work or something like this in, in uh, pharmaceuticals or something like this. <clears throat> he came up and he was like, you start with corrupted data, your results are meaningless and there's going to be consequences for people based upon that faulty data, right? So whatever. So it's chaos. The Jordan, the Jordan Adams presentation was like, I mean, I mean, I was almost embarrassed for the guy. I'm like, this is what you go. This is your premier. This is your first ever contract with a public school to launch your private, private for-profit corporation by which you're the CEO. And you're coming here with like default fonts, default fonts <coughs> and a PowerPoint presentation that nobody can read in like a, a, a kind of a back bedroom with no AC, <laughs> right? That's what you're going to give us. Are you kidding me? I was almost embarrassed for him. It's like, dude, you just like, you're sinking your freaking career here. But I guess it doesn't matter when you've got kind of billionaires funding what you're doing, but whatever. But I mean, that's, I mean, that was my, I was like, oh my God, this is like, I can't believe somebody would come forward with this. So that's a disaster, right? The moves that the board's making, Jordan Blomgren, is she's reading explicit material, what she calls explicit material out and kind of want everybody to kind of talk about it. Then Jordan Adams kind of does, tries to do a similar, similar thing a little bit later on. Looks like they're in violation of policies, they're in violation of laws, in violation of labor law, in violation of Pennsylvania Department of Education. We find out because one of the members of the board, what was his name? Um, 
Jonathan Russell actually says, wait a minute, under Pennsylvania Department of Education law, if I'm going to hire a curriculum supervisor, they have to have these this degree, this number of years of experience. They have to have this kind of degree and they have, this, have to be working a certain number of years doing this kind of thing. Do you have those credentials, Jordan Adams? And Jordan's like, nope. <laughs> and so Russell's like, literally, I think he's like taken back, right? Because Russell, he's like, he's looking at he's like, so you want me to accept your recommendations when I could even hire you as a curriculum supervisor under law, right? But that doesn't matter to like, you know, like the red wizards of Thay on our board, right? That doesn't matter to Ricky Chaikin. That doesn't matter to Megan Bannis Clemens. It doesn't matter to Jordan Blomgren. Why? Because they don't care because they're believers, <laughs> right? They got the, they got the light. <laughs> they got the darkness in their souls, right? I mean, it's like unbelievable, right? And so he doesn't even have the credentials for that. So that's cool. I mean, there's that kind of chaos that's going on. And members of the board are like pointing all this stuff out. It just, it, it was, it was, it was insane. But the key moment for me came when, and again, I'll get back to, I'm sorry, uh, um, <clears throat> Jane Kramer kind of kept it on the mic and she said, instead of addressing the insanity from the Red Wizards of Thay, Ricky Chaikin, Megan Manis Clemens, and Jordan Blomgren, right? Instead of addressing them, you address the two guys that never say a word, Robert Cormick and, and David Reese, Rice, Reese. Who, David Reese, by the way, who is the board president. Okay. So Cormick and Reese sit there, say nothing. At one point, Ron Wirtz turns to David. We said, look, I'd like to know. There's two people who haven't said a word about any of this. Looks over to them. I would like to know what you think. Mr. Reese, you're our board president. I think the public at least should know what your what your thoughts are, why what your reasoning is behind hiring this guy. You just saw this. You know this is not right. Joan Cullen says, we know you this is not right. So Jane Kramer, what she does, she turns, she doesn't address the Red Wizards. She addresses Cormac and Reese, and she says, you two have the power to change this. You're sitting here and you're seeing what a disaster this is. This is on you now. We know the three of them are never going to listen to it. But you, the two of you have never said a word, and yet you voted with them. We don't know why. And said, Mr. Reese, someone else comes up and says, I know you've contributed. You've done good things for this district. Is this how you want to be remembered? This is going to be your legacy? Someone else comes up and says, look, it's a small town. People will remember this. But Jane Kramer got that, got, got that going, and some other people started focusing in on that and said, that, that is strategic. Because at some point, it's about the majority on the board, not the Red Wizards. So... They started, and then this came the next night too as well. They put pressure on, and but they didn't cave, right? The next night, when it came to kind of like a vote, they uh, Ron Wirtz was able to get a vote out there to basically say to cancel the Vermilion contract, and again they lost that vote by five four. The same five voted to keep Vermilion. That was the Red Wizards plus Cormac and Race and Reese. 
They put pressure on. They didn't. They didn't change their vote. They didn't decide to get rid of the Vermilion contract. But that is key because they right now they are they are. It re, that's where that's where it is. Nobody knows what the heck those people think. Nobody knows what Robert Cormick thinks about all this stuff in any significant way. He made some stupid joke, and that was all he said at one point. It was about like, oh, University of Pittsburgh is the Harvard of the West. That's what we call it. I mean, it was like, really? That's the only thing that you're going to say at this board meeting. And David Reese, president of the board, when asked directly to talk about what his thinking was, refused to even say a word. Just sat there like a freaking idiot. I don't know how, like, again, I could not live with myself. I could not go home to my kids <laughs> and say, when somebody asked me a question, I just kept silent and wouldn't say anything. I, I just, I, I don't know how, whatever. But that is true. You know the Red Wizards are always going to be after their agenda. They're not changing. However, those two, that's where pressure needs to be if we're going to change this. And that's in the short term. This is especially important because of one other development that we learned during these school board meetings. Um, Dr. Bolton, who was the superintendent of the schools, if you remember, he went on medical leave. I don't know, I know if this was before last week or not. Um, I may have mentioned this last week. If this, I can't remember when the, the sequence of events right now. So much has happened this week. But Dr. Bolton basically um, was on medical leave, and he was supposed to kind of be returning um, in July or something. Well, it was announced at the meeting that uh, Bolton is extending that medical leave until October 31st, at which time he will retire. Why is this important? This is important because this school board, right? Yes, there's an election in November, but it will be this school board <clears throat> that is going to be choosing the next superintendent. We know what the agenda of the Red Wizards is going to be. We've already heard now that these school board members, Jordan Blomgren, uh, Ricky Chaikin, <clears throat> Megan Bannis clemens I'm not sure which ones have been doing this or not, but I've heard this from teachers. They have been sitting in on interviews with teachers. Right? <clears throat> so that's the level of micromanaging that they are executing already. And you know they are going to pick the people that are to go along with them to serve on the hiring committee for that next superintendent. And as, look, a lot of people are singing Bolton's praises. <clears throat> I'm not going to be one who's going to sing his praises. He may have done really good things. He may have worked really well with teachers. He may have been super supportive of teachers and things like that. And that may be true. <clears throat> right? And I'm not going to contest that because I don't know. I don't have that kind of relationship with him. What I do know <clears throat> is he has given very little pushback to this board in public. And there's been times which he's, he's been pretty patronizing to, to some members of the public. But where has the pushback been from him? We did finally get to see the one place which he was against Vermillion, hiring Vermillion, right? 
you get that in one of the clips, right? Um, again, we talked about this last week, um, but you'll get that in one of the clips. Um, Jenny Stevens posted this on, on the Bucks County Beacon, right? They got this from a, a right to no request about his email that he had sent to, I think, Jordan Blomgren or maybe was, <clears throat> um, Megan Menace Clemens responded to whatever about the Vermilion contract and why this was not a good idea and why we're outside of our normal process and why this is concerning and we shouldn't do this. Um, and Megan Bennett's come and said, okay, you're just, a, you're just one of them. You're a conspiracy. They've, they've taken you over and now you're an enemy, right? You know, it was basically the, the tenor of her, um, it was the tenor of her email. <clears throat> so that's the one time we had it here, but what kind of pushback did he give about even like bringing in a Christian nationalist curriculum to overlay to the Penridge curriculum? I don't know. To what extent has he kind of like tried to bolster the strength and strengthen those curriculum supervisors and those teachers has what, in what ways has he become an advocate for the teachers? I mean, I don't know. <clears throat> don't know. Certainly haven't seen it in those public meetings. Matter of fact, I've seen him work with that board to execute their agenda. So <clears throat> does that mean he put his own job over what is right? Maybe. <clears throat> so I don't know. But nonetheless, this is the board that is going to be picking the next superintendent. And so strategic, strategic, strategic. <clears throat> we put pressure upon and who is going to be, are we ensure the next superintendent is not going to be some kind of like Hillsdale graduate, like ideological wizard of Thay. <clears throat> so there we have it. So anyways, do check out the, uh, um, again, that YouTube playlist. It's the PA School Board Wars. Uh, you can check it out at um, YouTube slash Raging Chicken Press. That's YouTube slash Raging Chicken Press. You scroll down and it's um, <clears throat> down below. If you really want to know, you can actually, if you really want, maybe I'll put this uh, this link in this, if you want to see just this particular meeting. I do separate out the, uh, the playlist. So if you go to Penridge SB Committee Meetings 6 slash 20 slash 23 playlist, you click on the playlist, you'll be able to kind of go to the specific date. <clears throat> um, but if you want to get it right away, you can just go to the school board wars, PA school board wars, and go from there. All right, that's going to do it for me, everybody. Thank you all for tuning in. Um, it's as usual. Um, I wish you all the best. Um, I hope we get some well-deserved rain and that uh, we can take a little bit of a breather um, because there's not another school board meeting for a little bit while to kind of figure out um, what's the directions that we go from here. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Want to remind you, you can help support this show. You can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress where you can help support this work. And remind you once again on Monday, this coming Monday, we've got Chris Ullery on the show uh, to talk about his latest piece, Digging In More and the Right-Wing Influences on Our School Books. See you!